Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're debating the life, work and legacy of the Queen of Crime herself, Agatha Christie. And we'll be finding out how she became the best-selling novelist of all time. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about pioneering Dublin women and the history of land surveying in Ireland. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows... Just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Now, later in the show, I'll be talking to Dr. John Curran, a literary scholar and archivist and a leading expert on the work of Agatha Christie, and Tony Meadower, a detective fiction expert and also a brilliant expert on Agatha Christie. But right now, I'm delighted and honoured to be joined by one of my favourite historians, Dr. Lucy Worsley, who is the author of the brilliant new book, Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman, published in paperback by Hodder and Stoughton. Lucy, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. When I was growing up, I absolutely loved Agatha Christie but then at a certain point I found that there was a real snobbery about her and that you were kind of almost uh, looked down on if you were still reading Agatha Christie and I've noticed that in recent years that's all changed again she's stylish again she's cool again you have brilliant crime writers like Lucy Foley acknowledging their debt to her a lot of the the mysteries now have the Agatha Christie style twists and she's very much a, a writer back in fashion. I think you're right, and I think that's partly because our notion of who's allowed to be in the canon of great writers has expanded. A lot of people in the later 20th century sort of position themselves as highbrow by saying, Agatha Christie is rubbish, it's trashy, she's too successful, too commercial for us, but now she's she's on university syllabuses. People are realising that it's OK to be female and middlebrow and hugely successful and also taken seriously. She presented herself as a kind of an ordinary woman and not particularly spectacular. But as you show that it was a very remarkable life, she was a, an extraordinary person and, and maybe that the real Agatha Christie was different from the image that she sometimes liked to portray. Well, definitely towards the end of her life, she presented, her publishers presented her as a kind of cosy, Miss Marple-like figure, a little old lady, maybe wearing tweeds, sitting in a country garden, eating a cream tea. But that was a public image that she carefully crafted, I think, to cover up the fact that she was quite a rule-breaker. A lot of the rules that existed for women in the 20th century were actually broken by her. She, she was, I argue, a more radical person than you might think. And she loved the fast cars, you know, she had that interest in psychology, you know, uh, I think surfing. It was different from the image that you might have of her. Well, if you, yes, people have got the wrong idea, partly because of, you know, Sunday night TV drama, David Suchet. That makes her work look like it's period drama. But for her first readers, and she was publishing from 1920 right through to her death in 1976, she was a contemporary writer, and that's what we that's what we miss. I know it sounds stupid, but people's idea of the of what she looked like is is so ubiquitously as an old lady wearing cat's eye spectacles that people almost forget that she was young once. <laughs> and she prided herself on being modern, writing in the present moment, capturing present preoccupations, which is why for historians like us, Patrick, she's not just entertainment, she's a record of the social history of the 20th century. And you mentioned how she was a rule breaker in her life. She was kind of a rule breaker in her novels as well, in terms of the conventions for detective stories or the way she would have certain twists. The, the clues would be there in plain sight, but the way she would have her little tricks of misdirection to, to mislead the reader that or an unreliable narrator, that uh, it was very much, I think, uh, changing how we viewed a crime novel. 
Well, what, one of the things I like about the whole business of detective fiction is that it's a community and the writers quote from each other and sort of pay each other little nods. And when she, when she set out in the first place, I think she took the idea of Sherlock Holmes, whom she much admired, and when she created Hercule Poirot, she, she turned Sherlock Holmes on his head, if you like. And she, Sherlock Holmes is basically part of the establishment. You know, his brother it runs the foreign office or something. But Hercule Poirot is very much an outsider. And you get that even through his name. You know, Hercules is supposed to be a big classical muscular hero. But Hercule is diminutive. He's camp. And he's a war refugee. He has a funny moustache. He has a foreign accent. He's not been to public school. And everybody underestimates him for that reason. You know, in some ways, he has the qualities of a stereotypical woman. He's somebody who gets dismissed, if you like, and then comes to the fore through sheer achievement. He also has his own Dr. Watson in Hastings, but uh, Agatha Christie herself found Hastings a bit of a bore and wrote him out. You, you mentioned as well that he was a bit of a bore and that it probably was better for the stories that, that Hastings uh, wasn't a part of it as they went on. Well, she, she got rid of Hastings by getting him married and sending him off to what was then called the Argentine. <laughs> and the first novel was narrated through Hastings's own voice. And it was quite awkward to think of situations where Hastings could be present the whole time in order to experience everything. So she, she got rid of him. She almost, you know, there are problems with Pyro. He's a bit full of himself. You know, I am the great detective. And she got a bit fed up with him too. But Pyro paid the bills. <laughs> yeah, I always thought reading the books that she didn't like Poirot because there is a fictionalised version of Christie herself in some of the later novels and who had a very successful Finnish detective who she was very frustrated with and didn't like but that the readers loved him and I always thought that she was uh, using that character to, to poke fun at the, the problems that she had uh, herself or maybe her conflicted feelings on, on Poirot. Yes, you're talking about the character Mrs Ariadne Oliver, who is herself a detective novelist. And it's basically a spoof of Agatha's own self in later life. She, she's always playing these jokes and tricks and incorporating bits of real life into her novels. But actually, I think the character who was most treasured by Agatha Christie, the one who really stood for herself, was Miss Marple who emerged in the later, happier, more stable, more creative part of her life. And Miss Marple and Agatha Christie grow, go through life hand in hand. They get older at the same rate. And they use some of the same strategies for misdirecting attention away from their, their very unfeminine big brains that they have. What about some of the other characters who might have had as many books but were still uh, popular? Certainly, I loved uh, Tommy and Tuppence oh, Beresford. Oh, you loved them? You loved uh, them, did you? Absolutely, ah. yeah. And I thought that first one, The Secret Adversary, was, was, you know, had great twists in it. But I thought they, as... As, as the world changed, they grew older as well. They had children. They're involved in the Second World War and the spying in NRM. And, 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 and you know, I think by the last one, they're elderly. You know, that you very much live, you saw them live their lives as well. Mm, mm. It is true that she's a great spokesperson for older people. She allows older people to be at the centre of the story and to make achievements. Some people find Tommy and Tuppence a bit annoying. So I'm glad that you, you like them. And they were, they were, they were basically bright young things of the 1920s and their stories are very fast placed and they 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 reflect um the sort of cut and thrust of 1920s culture and i think one of their key importances is that they they show that agatha christie was a modernist writer a lot of people would say now who are the modernist writers they are james joyce aren't they and uh t.s Eliot, but Agatha Christie, too, was concerned with pace and with not having a long, baggy, traditional Victorian narrative kind of setting for your novel. And her characters are very lightly drawn. They're almost symbols sometimes who are there to sort of kick a plot into action. So she is the great unrecognised modernist. What about the criticisms then? And you mentioned them in the book, uh, her views on race and class, that there are also examples where she's very much rooted in some of the prejudices of the time. Mm. It's really interesting, isn't it? Some I have heard young people say, look, there, there are things in these books that make me uncomfortable. Why should I read them? But if it makes you uncomfortable as a historian, that's all the more point 
to reading it, I think. We need to know how prevalent these attitudes were throughout the 20th century to see what effect they've had in the world that we live in today. So they're not just entertainment and they, they are also a record of what huge numbers of British and American, mainly white people, with the time and the leisure to read detective stories, believed about the world. Because the way her work works, really, is by taking stereotypes... You're going to think this, this is what everybody thinks, and then flipping it, cutting the ground under you. And also because she was publishing for such a long time, it's really interesting to see the shift in the way that she thinks about the world. Or let me rephrase that, thinks the way that her readers are going to be thinking about the world as it's captured in her books. So you do see things like the liberalisation of her views towards Iraqi people. She spent a lot of time in West Asia. It mattered to her a lot. Uh, Liberalisation towards um, same-sex couples, for example. In uh, 1952, in the book, a murder is announced. And this is quite amazing. There is a totally normalised same-sex couple living in the village. Uh, nobody bats an eyelid. And that is just kind of hidden in plain sight in this hugely successful work of commercial fiction. Uh, and she definitely, you know, she, she was reflecting a changing world. So let's talk about how she got into writing then. You talk about how from, or you write about how from a very early age she loved reading. I think she was reading from the age of four. She loved books. She loved detective stories. And then during the First World War she started, well I think she was writing a bit, but it was then that she, I suppose, created Hercule Poirot and that idea of what became the mysterious affair at Styles. Well, Agatha's life sort of went off course. When, when she was born in 1890, her wealthy family uh, thought that her destiny was marriage. It was in no way to be a professional writer. But certain things happened, particularly World War I happened. By that time, she was married. But she wasn't able to live with her husband because he was serving in France. So she volunteered in the local hospital where... Eventually, she got a job in the hospital dispensary, which is where the medicines were mixed. And this is very responsible, important work for a young lady to be doing, because if you make a tiny slip, you can turn the medicine from life-saving to poisonous. So she became interested in poisons. And in the, the gaps in the time of working in the dispensary, she conceived the idea of her first novel which would feature a poisoning and a young lady who worked in a wartime hospital dispensary and Hercule Poirot, this wartime refugee. And the genius of the stories and especially the greatest of the stories is that you don't know the ending, you don't predict it, that there are clues that you miss but then there are red herrings that you I remember even one book where there was a whole list of characters at the beginning and I remember writing them down thinking okay here's my list of suspects but of course the murder wasn't on the list <laughs> you know, it was, a, or the ABC murders where you're introduced to a character early on and you think oh well she's showing us who the murderer is but it's not that you you end up you end up getting yourself into knots reading mm. the books and mm. and missing the obvious things mm. that you should have been focusing mm. on. Mm. And do you know one thing that interests me is that part of the fact that she has this low critical standing or has in the past had it is people's fear about giving spoilers. Now, because to her, her books were entertainment. She was really strict about spoilers. If a publisher revealed any kind of, you know, little clue, then she would go wild and she was really formidable when she was in a bad mood. But um, it has prevented people from doing literary criticism on her works. So you've described the pleasure of the plot, right? But because that's traditionally been prioritised above other great things about her writing, like the characterization and the dialogue and the sense of humor about it that's why she's been put into this genre box that isn't necessarily where she belongs you mentioned her husband and she had married Archibald Christie and he was glamorous uh, pilot and uh, liked his motorbikes but then it all went horribly wrong and uh, he started a relationship with a, a younger woman and it all led up to that very traumatic year for her in 1926 when her mother died. She discovered, I think, the relationship and then she went missing. Mm, the notorious year. And everyone seems upset. 
there was a Doctor Who episode based around yes, it. There yeah, have been novels yeah, around it. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, programs. It just seems to it captured the imagination of the world media at the time. It now you explain it very well in the book and about how understandable it is. But it's extraordinary how that incident ended up, you know, overshadowing so much of her story. It's it's a perfect sort of maelstrom of 1920s factors that caused this disappearance to become so notorious. Her marriage had been made, it was a really quick wartime marriage, and like so many others, it couldn't survive the peace. Her husband couldn't settle, he strayed. As you say, she had personal problems like her mother dying. And then, on the 3rd of December 1926, she disappeared for 11 days and there was this manhunt for her across the country and eventually she turned up again and there was a sense that people were almost disappointed that she wasn't dead because this huge search had taken place for her corpse. She turned up and she was alive and well and she was living in a hotel in Harrogate under a false name and she explained through the family doctors that what had happened is that she'd had an incident of mental illness. But that's not the narrative that the press went with. They went with the narrative that she was a bad actor, if you like, that she'd done this to get publicity for her books. She'd done it to get attention. Or perhaps she'd even done it. She'd gone away and hidden in order to frame her cheating husband for her murder. And, you know, that's a great story. And it's a story that built and it's a story that stuck. And it annoys me in 2022 that many people would tell you now, just people on the street would tell you, yes, that Agatha Christie, there was a there was something funny about her. You know, she disappeared when actually she was suffering from mental illness. She was experiencing suicidal thoughts, as she tells us. But she wasn't listened to. And even the way she she took took that room under the name of the surname of the the husband's uh, mistress. Yes, mistress. you're talking about a, a a really interesting twist of the mystery. When she when she disappeared, uh, she on the on the night of the disappearance, she she did make a suicide attempt. She tried to crash her car, and having survived that, she entered into what's called a fugue state and a fugue state is a a mental state that's all about escape from a traumatic reality so people were familiar with it in the 1920s because of shell shock it had been a reaction by some soldiers to the trauma of world war 1 and in a fugue state you can do normal things like catch a train to yorkshire which she did check into a hotel uh but you can't remember who you are because that has become intolerable to you. She couldn't bear to go on living as the bereaved, traumatised Mrs Agatha Christie. So her mind, on some level, invented a new character for herself. And she checked into the hotel under the name of Teresa Neal. And people have thought, aha, this is a clue. Neal is the same surname as the husband's lover. So it could be that this new character she was creating imagined her to be his new love. I think she was thinking herself back into his life in some way. And the first name, Teresa, well, the woman was actually called Nancy. Where does Teresa come from? Well, get this. Teresa is an anagram of teaser. And she had this incredible trickster mind that was really good at crossword puzzles. It was a mind made for making up such extraordinary things. And because she had such a brilliant mind, that was possibly why they wanted to believe that it was something much more nefarious or much more yes. complicated. Yes. And people we see in history some, you know, don't want to believe that the simplest explanation mm. is, is mm. often the mm. right. And at this point, I think she was a, a huge publishing success. The murder of Roger Ackroyd, you know, cemented a reputation. Was was she a success from the beginning with the first book, or how long was it before she was recognised as 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 a as a great writer and and a successful writer? Well, she had drafted her first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, back in 1916 when she's working in the hospital. But at the time, nobody wanted to publish it war on paper shortage it took until 1920 for her to come into print and it seems to me that she crested this post-war wave when publishers were starting to look for female writers women had some women had just got the vote in 1918 and also writers who were able to produce 
this kind of domestic view of the world. Her stories are always domestic, that, that went down well after the trauma, the violence of World War One. And when she got her publishing contract, she assumed she'd have to publish under the name of a man, because that's what a lot of women did. But the publisher said, no, we're going to go with... Agatha Christie. And what the papers were wanting in the early 1920s, right, was to, it was to change their business model. In the past, a newspaper had been bought by a man once a week. But what the newspaper barons wanted was for newspapers to be bought every day by men and women. And what were all of these newfound women readers supposed to want? Well, stories by women, stories like Agatha Christie could provide, which was serialised in the papers, and also stories about successful women, which Agatha Christie did provide. She gave profiles, she gave interviews, and that is partly why the press tore her down in 1926, because she got above her station, you see. And that's why after 1926, you don't get her giving these showy-offy publicity interviews in the paper anymore. She kind of retreats from public life and develops this air of being reclusive, being elusive, because she'd gone through this huge public shaming, I feel. Okay, so very much a 21st century connotation or a resonance there as well. She did find happiness then. She remarried uh, an archaeologist and and travelled with him on some of his digs. And of course, they feature in the books. And I love the way in the book, in various chapters, you have little quotes from various books where she brought them into her, uh, brought bits of her life into the stories and uh, and, and, and it helped shape and uh, guide her writing then as well. There's a long-running joke in, in a whole lot of her books um, <laughs> where an archaeologist really often turns out to be a bad guy. And this is a, this is a private joke between her and her second husband, the archaeologist. Yes, yes. I like the way that once, she, once she'd found him, and in some ways they were an odd couple because she was rich and famous and successful and 14 years older than him. But he was able to form a true kind of marriage of equals with her, I think, because he took her seriously. He looked up to her. He treasured her talent in a way that the first husband hadn't. So she she spent 45 years happily married to him and spending part of most years travelling to West Asia and being on his digs. During the Second World War, she wrote final books for Miss Marple and Poirot and in the Poirot one, well, we won't have to give away, but in Curtain, there's, you know, it's very much a final book, but they were to be only published, uh, I think, at her death or uh, at the end of her life. Why was she, why did she do that? Was she thinking that, you know, the war might go badly, Britain might lose and that might be the end of everything? You know, were her thoughts on... On, on possibly, uh, you know, some dark, terrible tragedy unfolding? Mm. The war was obviously hard for a lot of people. It was hard for Agatha Christie in particular because her husband, Max, uh, went to serve in North Africa. So she was deprived of his support for four years. And I know through speaking to psychiatrists that if you have any kind of vulnerability to mental illness, to lose your support, it, it can possibly come back again. So I think that she found it a time of struggle. And she was also, you know, living in London when bombs were falling. Death was on people's minds. So as an insurance policy, she wrote books that would be put into the bank vault and they were only to be published if anything happened to her so that her um, daughter and her second husband would be provided for financially after she was gone. So she was thinking ahead in that sense. She wrote so many books and she seems to have had this incredible gift to be able to write the books quickly as well, that some of them she was able to do in, in six weeks. It seems a remarkable gift to be able to to conceptualise the whole thing and then to be able to, to, to write it so quickly. Well, she described how the real work was done before she picked up the pen and that was the plotting which she would do in her head while <laughs> she describes sometimes while looking at hats in a hat shop or while um, walking about the town. That was that was the part she enjoyed. And then she described the sitting down and actually putting the words on the page as a bit of a drag after that. And she, because of 1926 and because of her anxiety about presenting herself as a successful career woman, she would often talk down the importance of her work in her life. 
in a way that um, I think does her a disservice. You know, she'd say, oh, yes, writing. I, I don't pay much attention to that. Sometimes I do it on the dining table after after breakfast. Sometimes I do it on the washstand in my bedroom. But there are also times, and the evidence is there, there are also times when she went on these really intense writing binges. She describes one time when she produced a whole book in three days. Three days. She stayed up. She did nothing else. She just produced it. And she gives occasional hints that these are important times to her. Times where she felt powerful and creative. Close to God is how she describes it. So however much she played down her professionalism, her distance from her writing, it was definitely a deeply felt part of herself. There are some great books in the later years, but there are also some ones that don't really work at all. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think it's Passenger to Frankfurt, mm. where, you know, the, the plot, you know, you couldn't barely even describe it. That There definitely does seem to be some kind of decline in quality in the later years. Well, when you consider that the secret of her success had been bang on the nose, bang up to minute, up to the minute, um, reflecting the currents that were flowing in society at any given time. As she gets older, this does get harder for her. She really tries to maintain the pace. She has books with miniskirts and psychedelic drugs in the 1960s. But to me, it doesn't quite work so well. And when she produced this book, you, you mentioned Passenger to Frankfurt. Some people think it's brilliant. Personally, I think it's a bit bonkers. But the cool thing is, you know, by this stage in her life, her brand, her brand was so powerful that everybody just went on buying their Christie for Christmas, as it was called. That's what the marketing campaign was. So her agent and her publisher were like, this book's really bad. Do we dare send it out into the world? And then it spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list and they, they had to kind of apologise to her. And they said, yep, you've done it again. But sometimes, though, even in the earlier years, she, she had written thrillers like uh, The Big Four, the Hercule Poirot one, which was kind of terrible as well. That mm. I think that there were sometimes she she kind of maybe... There were certain types of books that maybe didn't suit her skills as well as others. It depended on how she was feeling as well. So the Big Four was was the was was part of the whole maelstrom of the disappearance when she felt that she had to write because she was about to be divorced, she was about to become a single mum, she needed to support her daughter financially. And under that pressure, she knew she wasn't producing her best work. There is one of the standalone books that's always been a favourite of mine, and I and I love the way you cover it in the book, Endless, Endless en Night. Endless Night, yeah. Uh, because, yeah. you know, on the surface, this beautiful love story, and uh, and I think there's great characterization in it. There's, I think it's early 1960s. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But, uh, like, that's a very powerful story that has a real kick in it, and uh, uh, I think can draw you in every single time to it. It's true. And, and one of the things that's really clever about that book is that if you know the murder of Roger Ackroyd, you'll know that she's playing the same trick again. 40 years later, it has the same... I hope I'm not giving too much away here. It has the same device in it. And but one I think of, even better. I think even better? better. Yes, I yes, think yes. even better because uh, you de I don't think you could read it and see it coming. Oh, yes, yes. No, I totally agree with you. And I love the fact that it's a Christie trick. And then the trick is, on this case, that it's the same trick that she's played before, but we've all forgotten. <laughs> and in terms of her death then, how was she viewed at the time then? Was it the great queen of crime? You know, was there... Uh, were there huge outpourings of grief and was there a sense that, you know, Britain, the world had lost this great writer? Yes, yes, you're right. Uh, on the night that she died, well, on the, the night of the day that she died, it was the top story on the BBC News. And the lights were dimmed in the free West End theatres where her, her works were being performed that night. And people felt that an era had ended. But by that time, because she had become the queen of crime, the duchess of death, that sort of disguised, it hid the fact that she had in her time been this radical, extraordinary, rule-breaking woman with something of the outsider about her. By that point, she'd moved to the centre of the British establishment in a way that, um, in a way that kind of 
covers up the truth. And we haven't mentioned the plays because, of course, she had great success uh, on the stage as well. And, of course, with something like The Mousetrap, which just runs and runs, that uh, that was uh, an, another dimension to her work as well. She'd always enjoyed um, drama, writing plays right from her right from her childhood. But she didn't become really successful as a playwright into her own 60s. She's a great role model for people achieving things later on in life. And you can see why she was going to be good as a dramatist, because her works are so much about plot and dialogue. She described how she enjoyed writing plays because you didn't get all bogged down in describing what the weather was like or what the people were wearing. And um, her plays... This is curious as well. They have quite a low critical standing still in a way that her books have now been sort of um, rehabilitated, I feel. And that's because after Agatha Christie, it was the 1960s and along came the angry young men. And how did the angry young men position themselves? Well, they positioned themselves as being different from the past, which was the ubiquitous Queen of the West End, Agatha Christie. It's she has had a remarkable legacy as well. There's all the movies, the television programs. I, I think, you know, there's there's probably more movies being made of her work and those brilliant BBC dramas as well than ever. And I suppose another legacy is the number of of writers who openly acknowledge their debt to her mm. and that they, they mm. very much try and do similar tricks in the misdirection and that there's 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 so many writers now that uh, that it, it is a remarkable legacy for uh, someone who uh, wrote these books, but to be still influencing writers, dramatists, filmmakers today. It is, it is. And, you know, um, what's often said is that she's she's the best-selling author ever behind only Shakespeare and the Bible, right? That's the cliche. Two billion books of hers have been printed, second only to Shakespeare and the Bible. But every time I hear that, I think, unlike Shakespeare and well, possibly God. <laughs> she was a woman too. She achieved that in a world that was made by men. It's a brilliant book and it really captures the energy and the uh, the excitement of the life. Was there anything in the life that surprised you that uh, when you were doing it, you thought, this is a big shock for me or this makes me think about her in a different way? I approached her archive with an open mind. And I was actually open to the idea that maybe in 1926 she had been malignantly motivated. And there's a, there's in our popular culture, this exists as a view and it's coming from a feminist place, I think, which is that, yes, she framed him for her murder, but he deserved it. But approaching the sources, I did not find that. And I found instead this journalistic conspiracy to put that story across. And I wanted to correct that misunderstanding. So when we do shows on classical composers, we often recommend some pieces of music. Talking about the author, if you were to recommend one book to our listeners as a, a good introduction to Agatha Christie? I go to say The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. It is often voted as the best detective story of all time. OK, well, my thanks to Lucy Worsley for joining me tonight to talk about the life, the work, the legacy of Agatha Christie, the author of a brilliant new book, Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman. It's published in paperback by Hodder and Stoughton. And Dr Lucy Worsley, of course, the chief curator of historical Roy palaces in the UK, but of course, well known to all of us for her brilliant works uh, on TV and her brilliant books as well. And now she has turned her attention to Agatha Christie. Well, we'll be back with more on the life and legacy of Agatha Christie right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we continue our discussion on the life, the work and the legacy of Agatha Christie. And I'm delighted to be joined now by two leading experts on the work of Agatha Christie. Tony Medawar is a detective fiction expert as well as an expert in Agatha Christie and produced the Agatha Christie Festival in 2020 and 2021 and designed the festival programme this year. And he's the editor of the very successful Bodies from the Library series. And he's also edited uh, the collection While the Light Lasts. 
and also the book Murder She Said the quotable Miss Marple and Dr John Curran uh, also joins us he's a literary scholar and archivist and a leading expert on the work of Agatha Christie for many years he edited the Agatha Christie newsletter and he served as a national trust consultant during the restoration of Christie's Devon residence the Greenway Estate and his books include Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks 50 Years of Mysteries in the Making and Agatha Christie's Murder in the Making Stories and Secrets from Her Archive well you're both very welcome and John I might start with you and and these notebooks because they give us an incredible insight into the creative process uh, of Agatha Christie and I'm wondering how did she go about writing these books and creating these stories? Well, despite the fact of the 73 books and the, the work I did transcribing them and describing them, we really don't know very much about her actual creative process because I've yet to meet anyone and that includes her family who ever saw her actually writing or typing. Um, I describe in, in the first book that the no, I think she used the notebooks as a sounding board. Um, she jotted down her ideas as they came to her, put the notebook aside and went ahead with her conversation or her meal or her holiday or whatever it might be. And then when it came to write her Christie for Christmas, as it became known, she got out her notebooks and looked at the notes and decided which ones she was going to use and then expanded on them. But she does say in her autobiography at one point, she talks very little about the notebooks, but she says, when I look at a note that I wrote some years earlier, it might say, for instance, two girls, poison, garden. She said, I have no idea what I meant when I wrote that. But, and I think this is the important fact, that may spur me on to think of something along those lines. The the notebooks contained all her ideas for what she might do, and then she expanded on them. And John, when she started writing the book, did she always know who the murderer was going to be or could that change as as the writing developed? Well, again, my own feeling is, she, yes, she did know who the, murderer be, who, who the murderer was, although in very, very few cases, anywhere in the notebooks, does she actually say the murderer is Mrs. O'Brien or Mr. Murphy. But she does, in, for instance, Mrs. McGinty's dead, she goes through the various characters, marking them as likely or less likely or completely unlikely as the murderer, that when she started doing her notes, she didn't necessarily know who the murderer was. And the, the one that surprises me most was, and I'm not going to give away any endings here, but anyone who is familiar with her work knows that Crooked House is one of her shock endings. And I would have always assumed that the shock ending was the raison d'etre of that book. But in reading the notes for it, that wasn't the case. It seems to me that for that particular book, the shock ending came to her as she wrote. But this is what I mean when I say we don't really, really know how she did it. No more than we really know how Pavarotti did what he did or Maradona did what he did. They just had this gift to do this. You wrote a wonderful piece of 75 things about Agatha Christie uh, that we, we, we won't know or might know. Uh, you wrote it a few years ago, but it is it is brilliant. Like It has some wonderful things like the way when, I, when Hercule Poirot died, the fictional character, he received a full page obituary in the New York Times. Yes, and he started this 40 years ago and he's still the only, 50 years ago almost, he's still the only fictional character to ever receive that accolade because he was he was so famous. The front page of the New York Times, I mean, that's quite an achievement. I wonder, did Agatha Christie have a favourite book and did she have a book that she absolutely hated? Well, the one that she absolutely hated, and she says this herself, so I'm not speculating here, was The Mystery of the Blue Train, which she published in 1928. And the, partly, possibly the reason for that is because she had just had a very painful separation and divorce from her husband, Archie Christie, And it was at this point when she was writing Mystery of the Blue Train that she realised she now had to write to put food on the table, almost literally. Whereas up to then she was doing it as almost as a pastime, even though she did it very professionally. But she suddenly realised that now she had to write whether she wanted to or not. And she wrote some of that book when she was staying in Tenerife as a a holiday after the trauma. Um, And she's she says herself it's the worst book she ever wrote. It's actually an expanded version of an earlier short story. And it's not as bad as Christie is making it out, but it is certainly would never be in anyone's top ten. One her favourites well, this changed from time to time, but one of her favourites was a late book, Ordeal by Innocence, um, 
on the basis that somebody who has been convicted of a murder was actually innocent. So the, the investigation goes back to the family because the murderer is still a member of the family and the person they thought did it didn't do it. So that's one that she always um, counted as one of her favourite books. Tony, tell us about the Agatha Christie Festival because I I see that uh, l- uh, last month you were talking about this great odyssey, ten month odyssey that she that she embarked on a hundred years ago in 1922, and it seems that every year the festival brings together experts and looks at these uh, really quite fascinating aspects of her life and career. That's right. I mean, she had a most extraordinary uh, life, and she she was obviously the world's best selling author. Uh, but she was also uh, a, a great traveller and she contributed to the archaeological uh, studies of her husband uh, and was passionately interested in the Middle East herself. So what we try to do with the festival is we try to explore the obvious aspects of Agatha Christie's life and works. So we have speakers like John, uh, Mark Aldridge, Julius Green, uh, Carla Valentine, Lucy Worsley was one of the speakers at this year's festival. But we also try to showcase her contribution to life in South Devon by holding events at some of the places that she visited and knew. So we had a short story reading inside a ship in Paynton Harbour. We have a murder mystery on a golf course. We had a talk inside inside a cave, Kent's Caverns. And next year, we've got a talk in a church and uh, a theatre that she used to go to when she was uh, young. Um, and we also uh, give people an opportunity to hear perhaps some of her less well-known work. Uh, we've had uh, dramatised readings of unpublished plays. Um, but I think the most important thing the festival does is bring together, it provides an opportunity for people who love uh, the work of Agatha Christie, to come together to meet other people who share that love, to talk about it, find out new things they didn't know, and either discover for the first time or rediscover uh, some of the books that she wrote. Um, John's mentioned several, but uh, she remains incredibly popular. There's a, a new film being made soon based on her novel Halloween Party. So, you know, she's a, she's a very live writer despite being dead for, for nearly 50 years she is, she is very much alive and kicking So talk to us about that new movie because I think it is the, the third in the Kenneth Branagh series and it's been given the title A Haunting in Venice which is a much more mysterious and uh, exotic title than the Halloween party title of, uh, of Christie herself What Kenneth Branagh has uh, tried to set out to do is to uh, bring a, a different take uh, to Agatha Christie's novels. Uh, for some people, they're successful. For others, they're less successful. Um, by transplanting uh, the plot of one of her novels to another country, he's simply doing what uh, what many people have done with the work of great writers in the past. Setting uh, the, the story in, in Venice is, is interesting. It's a very cunning plot, I think, Um, She is just an incredibly readable uh, writer, and she created some fantastic characters. John mentioned uh, Ecuel Poirot getting his obituary in the New York Times. It's an extraordinary thing, but Agatha Christie didn't get an obituary in the New York Times. Uh, Poirot did. Um, So the characters, uh, in in some ways, have have outlived the the writer, but... uh, I think anyone uh, picking up almost any of her books from the 1930s and 40s in particular, but in other decades as well, cannot cannot fail to be entertained. Okay, well, tonight we are debating the life, the work and the legacy of Agatha Christie. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to my guests about the great legacy and the remarkable legacy of Agatha Christie right up to today. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History with Patrick Gagan. On News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life, work and legacy of Agatha Christie. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by Dr. John Curran, literary scholar and archivist and the author of Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. And Tony Medawar, a detective fiction expert and an expert on Agatha Christie and whose books include The Bodies from the Library series, very successful series. 
John, can we talk about the legacy of Agatha Christie and why she is uh, still so uh, popular and the fact that um, you have all these different incarnations of Miss Marple, of Hercule Poirot and so on, that it is an extraordinary afterlife that not all novelists have. Absolutely. Um, And I, I agree with Tony when he says readability is a huge factor. And the other huge factor I've always thought is the fact that the books are about 200 pages, which is ideal for a detective story. I mean, most modern crime novels are four and five and sometimes 600 novels, which is at least three times too long. Um, But she just got it absolutely right. Um, And, of course, they're attractive to filmmakers and stage producers and radio producers. Um, And by and large, a lot of the adaptations are perfectly acceptable. But I do take issue with people who think they are cleverer than Agatha Christie. And for instance, we've seen some adaptations in the last few years which change her murderer, which is the equivalent of Hamlet marrying Ophelia at the end of Hamlet. I mean, it's just, it's not on. She has influenced every crime writer who followed in her footsteps, and most of them will acknowledge that. She was the arch plotter of all times. You have to remember that she did this and she never went to school, which is quite, let alone to university, um, which is quite an achievement. So she she thought differently. She thought laterally, as as evidenced by her notebooks, when she would dash down ideas, numbering them or lettering them A, B, C, D, and she would go up as far as P, Q, R, S, T, all just dashed out one after the other as I say, in secret notebooks, probably when she was waiting for the kettle to boil. So her influence is all-pervasive and will continue to be. I mean, people talk about a book or a TV show as being Agatha Christie-like. As Dorothy Sayers, her great contemporary, said when she edited a classic collection of short stories and wrote a very um, cogent preface to it, the art of self-tormenting is an ancient one. So in other words, human beings have always loved puzzles whether they be jigsaws or bridge or Sudoku or crosswords or whodunits, um, because the whodunit is essentially a puzzle shorn of all its trappings. And while there still is a vogue for the psychological uh, crime novel, working out the reasons why people do what they do, um, there's still the pull of the whodunit is irresistible. Um, and Christie herself did, and she wrote an essay about this, after World War Two, she veered away slightly from not so much the whodunit as against the footprints and the fingerprints and the cigarette ash um, and moved towards the psychology of why people do what they do. But she still always managed to put in the lure of the whodunit and the explanation in the last chapter when someone that you've lived with for the previous five or six days or five or six hours is suddenly shown to be a villain. And John, she also wrote novels under a pseudonym, Mary Westmacott. And I don't know, I've never read any of them. I don't know if they if they have that same audience today as her Agatha Christie works. Well, I think you, one has to be honest here and say, if it wasn't known that Mary Westmacott was Agatha Christie, it's very doubtful that the books would still be in print because they're now republished on the, on the front cover. There's a big, big Agatha Christie and then there's a small writing as Mary Westmacott. But when she had them published in the first place, she was so pleased that they were accepted for publication without anyone knowing who she was. And that was the big thrill for her. It wasn't until many years later that somebody blew the gaff and it was revealed that Mary Westmacott is actually Agatha Christie. But they're totally different to any Christie novel. I mean, they're described as romance, but they're not. They're at best bittersweet romance. Um, but they were very deeply felt by her. She wrote one of them uh, over a weekend in a, in a white heat of creativity, as she said herself. Um, but she just wanted to explore something different to, you know, crimes and detectives and alibis. Tony, it's a deceptively simple style that I'm sure lots of people would think I'd be able to write a novel like that. But yet, as we see when people try to turn their hands to crime novels, and this is just looking at the ones that are published, never mind the ones that are rejected, it's much more difficult than that. And uh, it's it's not at all easy to to surprise people and to and to lure them in and then spring that surprise. 
it was the it was the cunning. It's it's the way the plot is presented. I, I always see her as a as a bit of a magician, really. The magician saws the lady in half or makes the rabbit disappear or whatever. It's quite a simple thing, but how was it done? And Christie Christie does that again and again. Sometimes she uses the same trick that she's used in a previous book. She uses it again, but you don't see. You don't realize that you're being duped the same way because the setup is different, the words are different. The magician has worked the trick again. And that's that's very much that's very much what she does. And Tony, whenever you hear people talking about Agatha Christie, it's usually as a great popular novelist, but never as a great novelist. And I wonder how should we evaluate her? How should we uh, think of her in terms of her writing? Well, I think the best people to evaluate Christie are the people who read her books. She didn't write populist uh, stories that set out to be deliberately populist. She set out to intrigue and puzzle. And I think she should be uh, recognised as the greatest exponent of the, the, the detective story, the, the crime novel as a puzzle. That's not to say that she didn't write psychological crime stories. She did. And she tried some you know, really quite experimental ones in terms of their structure. Five Little Pigs is a superb novel, and it's very differently structured to other detective stories at the time. Um, and obviously, and then there were none, is is an enduring classic for the very simple thing. How do you put 10 people on an island and kill them all and still have a detective story? Genius. There is a dismissive phrase that's sometimes used to describe Christie's works and novelists in that style and it's uh, cosy crime and cosy crime writers. And it it, it always jars with me because I don't think the Christie stories are cosy and I think there is depth in it and there is... There, there are shocks and that it isn't just something very neat and sanitized. Cozy, I think, is a term adopted by um, American booksellers who uh, like to categorize the types of fiction so that in the same way they like to categorize the readers. Uh, Christie certainly didn't set out to write books within a narrow uh, definition of, of, of crime fiction. Uh, and cozy is an absurd term to use. Endless Night is a, is a late book written by a woman in her 70s. And it's absolutely, it is a very disturbing novel. Brilliant, but very disturbing. Absolutely. That is one of my favourite books. And I was trying to Lucy Worldsley, uh, we, we were chatting about that earlier. And it is it is one that I would really recommend to listeners because it just, uh, it has the shocks, but it has, you know, it's quite beauty and power in it as well. Uh, John, I'm going to leave the last word to you. How would you sum up the legacy of, of Agatha Christie and her, her place in the world today? Her legacy as a detective novelist is incomparable. There will never be another Agatha Christie or anyone even approaching her because by and large the type of book that she wrote, which as Tony has explained is a detective novel as distinct from a crime novel, they're by and large not being written nowadays. They're all layered with extra dollops of violence and sex and what have you. Um, During the war, for instance, Christie was the biggest selling writer um, because and in those days, when people got up in the morning, they didn't know, A, whether they'd be going to bed that night, or B, whether they'd have a bed to go to. So reading something where there is violence with a small V, but everything is sorted out by the last chapter, is very reassuring. She's still in print 50 years after her death, and a hundred over 100 years since her first book was published. The biggest selling crime writer. I can't see her influence disappearing at all, ever. Okay, well, I think that's a brilliant note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Dr. John Curran, literary scholar and archivist, Tony Meadower, detective fiction expert, and as well as an expert on Agatha Christie. And earlier, of course, we were joined by Dr. Lucy Worsley, the author of the new book, Agatha Christie, An Elusive Woman. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>